Hello, everyone. This is Everything is Interesting, your source for exploring science right here on X-Ray FM. I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. We are stoked to be back in the studio with our good friend Jefferson Smith. Uh, yeah. Hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the first episode in season two of Everything is Interesting, official podcast stuff. Uh, it's off to a fresh start. And in this season, we'll be exploring the topic of invasions. Like alien invasions, invasive species, non-sanctioned military action invasions. <laughs> what kinds of invasions are we talking about here? Sanctioned and non-sanctioned. Yeah. I mean, science, science-based science invasions, I would say. Anything in the realm of science. Like, you know, uh, maybe invasive species, maybe. Maybe aliens. Yeah. Could do some weird placental cell stuff because oh boy those invade yeah yeah they certainly do i'm sure we could do some some military action i'm sure there's a science to how those yeah. little squares move but right with some military strategy sure mm-hmm. jefferson we'll look into it <laughs> count me in <laughs> well and either way whatever we talk about it's gonna be weird it's gonna be fun and on today's episode it's even gonna get just a little bit creepy nature is brutal. It's an endless struggle for survival out there. There are enough little dramas being played out to keep Hollywood busy for centuries. There's stories of love, epic battles, humor, and if you dig deep enough, plenty of unspeakable horrors to rival even the best of Alfred Hitchcock. Oh yes. And if, like me, you're a fan of David Attenborough nature videos, you may be familiar with one particularly unsettling natural horror story. The diabolical fungal parasite that creates what is known as zombie ants. The fungus is called the cordyceps. I have heard of these. I thought it might have been because of y'all. What do we already know about the cordyceps, if I am pronouncing that correctly? I think you are. First of all, I'm very pleased that anytime you think of weird science stuff, you're like, I must have learned it from Kira and Kira. Yeah. Generally, I did not know everything was interesting until I met you both. Oh, well, you're welcome for enriching your life. You were just walking around with your head down in the rain like nothing is interesting. I found some things interesting, (laughs) but it is more recently that I have discovered that everything is interesting. Everything. And so our life is complete. All right, let's talk about the cordyceps. Oh, right, 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 right. That's why we're here. Okay, the story goes like this. Deep in the heart of the Brazilian jungle, there lives a robust little colony of Campanatus rupifes, or possibly rupifes. Nobody can can speak Latin. No No one can speak Latin. Everybody who knows how to speak Latin is dead. Exactly. So there lives a robust little colony of a species of carpenter ant. Ah, carpenter yeah. ants. Much simpler. The younger worker ants stick close to the nest, and the older workers forage for food and supplies along normal routes and routines amongst the brush. Let me just say, I have a carpenter ant story. It is an amazing carpenter ant story. I don't want to interrupt right now. People should do their homework first. But if we all do our homework and learn that everything is, in fact, interesting, I will share my carpenter ant story, and I promise it's worth it. That's what's known as a tease in the business. And by the business, I mean the industry. So if it, well, at the end we'll take a poll, and if everyone has learned that everything is interesting, right. then we have a we test. Can, we can hear the and then your reward are. will be okay. Jefferson's story. Got it. All right. Well, back to our little story about the carpenter ants in the jungle. One day, one little ant from the colony starts behaving a little bit strangely. After returning from a forage, this ant leaves the nest to march off in a completely different but very specific direction. She finds herself in a literal graveyard, completely covered with the mutilated bodies of countless other ants, all from her own colony. Isn't that nice? 
But instead of recoiling in horror, our aunt continues on as if nothing is wrong. She's supposed to be looking for food among the leaf litter, but for some reason she decides to instead climb a nice tall tree. Up she goes, up she climbs, to the underside of a leaf on the very topmost branch of the tree. Then suddenly, and inexplicitly, she sinks her mandibles, which are like her jaws, into the bottom of the leaf, firmly attaching herself to the tree. This is the very last thing this ant will do in her life. As soon after, she will die. The ant's corpse hangs there, suspended by the mandibles, gripping into the plant's flesh. (laughs) Then after some time, like out of some twisted but strangely enrapturing nightmare, the ant's head splits open, and the fruiting body of a fungus called Ophiocordyceps, or possibly just cordyceps, for short, bursts forth like some terrible mushroom antenna. The fungus then elongates, matures, and eventually spits out plumes of its own reproductive spores that shower the rest of the forest floor, where they can then, you know, go on to infect other unsuspecting ants from the colony, renewing the cycle of parasitic death. Is your story better than that, Jefferson? Is your story better than that? First of all, that's disgusting. (laughs) It's amazing. I find it very interesting, even more amazing than the average everything. It is not going to help me sleep at night. But yes, my story will still dazzle and baffle you. Excellent. I'm not going to say it yet. <laughs> you have to learn about the, the cordyceps. And it does this to the ant because what? They're just nasty because they need a ride. Oh, oh like, like, is, like, this what's the corny- their motive ah, here? What are evil? the cordyceps doing this for? They're is they're mean? Yeah. They're just evil. No. End of story. End of podcast. No. It's <laughs> Everything is interesting and most things are evil. The end. No, 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 no. It's actually not. No. I mean, it's that actually inaccurate. Nature is pretty, if you really look at it, woo. That's true. Well, no, 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 no. Okay. From the cordyceps point of view, this is a great reproductive strategy. The otherwise immobile fungus gets to hitch a ride on the ant and use its powerful ant legs to climb to the top of the forest canopy, ensuring that its reproductive spores will travel far across the forest floor, infecting as many new ants as possible. Okay, I think we can say that seems like a lousy deal for the ant. The only thing it seems to get out of this is the dying part, is the death part. (laughs) So why does the ant, why are they willing to do this for the cordyceps? It's still alive when it effectively becomes a fungal spore dispenser, yes? Yes. So why doesn't it fight against the fungus? Well, okay. That's because this fungus is a particular type of parasite, and the ant is really just its unwilling victim. So it's the fungus that actually drives the ant to leave the nest, to make this trek to the graveyard, to climb the plant, and to finally sink its mandibles into the stem at the top. And then it's the fungus that kills the ant, turning its corpse into the base for its reproductive stock. So the ant doesn't have a say in this matter. The fungus is actually manipulating it from within the own ant's body. Within. This is why it's so creepy. I'm calling you from inside your body. However, the biological mechanisms behind how the fungus controls the ant have remained rather mysterious since the cordyceps initial discovery back in 1859 by biologist uh, Alfred Russell Wallace. And up until recently, it was commonly assumed that the fungus must do its creepy zombification work directly on the ant's puny little brain. This is now I'm the evil one calling an ant's brain puny. (laughs) This hypothesis made sense, the brain being the control center for all the ant's motor function and behaviors. It, you know, seems like if you're a fungus, that's a place you'd want to take over. Right, that's where you go, to the brain. Also because zombies eat brains. 
This is what happens, right? right. Zombies or brain eaters? You can't, be a, you can't have a zombie without brains involved. That's, that's <laughs> only nerd logic, right? Mm-hmm. Now, based on my extensive research on the cordyceps prior to this mm-hmm. recording, I had been under the impression that the cordyceps releasing some kind of mind-controlling chemical cocktail, some potion that hijacked the ant's central nervous system and forced it to change its behavior in a way that would benefit the fungi. Was my research accurate? Well, it was for a while. Uh, This is what was commonly thought to be the case. And the idea isn't a bad one. But here's the thing. Super recent studies, like in the last few years, are actually revealing that it's something even more cringeworthy than that. And it's very possible that all this behavior controlling power that the cordycep has actually has nothing to do with the ant's brain at all. So you're saying is that the idea that we might have real zombie ants isn't really that we might not have zombie ants. You no zombie brains, no zombie right, ants. Right, because you can't have the zombie thing without the brain thing. Mm-hmm. I don't that's, know. I, I don't know if that's true. I would like to point out though, just in case you're going to walk away from this episode and be like, it's okay, zombies aren't real. There are lots of organisms. I think amoebas and also like wasps. A lot of different types of wasps that do con- they do mind control in there. Hosts. So they'd so, be actual zombies. They, yes. So uh, you can have like and an actual... And cats do some weird thing that's too, the, right? That's the amoeba. Yeah, that's the toxoplasmosis. They, yeah, they... To- cats make people crazy, right? <laughs> so, so never <laughs> fear. <dog>. Never <laughs> all fear. All cats make all people crazy. Yes. Everything should, is interesting. That's what you should take away from There this are episode. zombies. If not zombie ants, there are yes. real zombies out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are real zombies. But based on what we're about to tell you, I think calling the ants in this situation living puppets rather than zombies is actually a little more appropriate this has been a this is essentially the question i arrived with which is is the zombie ant is the cordyceps is it more like the purple man like the Kilgrave from jessica jones on netflix okay purple man if you're a comic book nerd what what does purple man do he is a um he like tells you something and then you have to do it ah listening it's it's like it's like a jedi mind trick but like a like more powerful Mm. okay or is it more like you were going to say something? Simply that I just realized that what I sound like when I talk to people at parties, where I'm like using lots of biology words and they're staring at me, that's how I just felt listening to you ask that question. Because it just didn't make any sense. <laughs> All right, that's fair. Is it more like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, or is it more like the Marvel character Mosaic, who could jump into other characters like a ghost and control their bodies? I'd say it's more like Mosaic. Yeah. Way to go, Marvel there. Yeah, that was good. Body Snatchers sounds more like the name sounds appropriate because the fungus sort of does snatch the ant's body. But if I remember correctly, in the invasion of the Body Snatchers, it actually there's actually just a bunch of clones that get made. So I don't I don't know. Maybe they snatch your body in physical form and then make a new one. That's why it's called Body Snatchers. Maybe they didn't care so much. Yeah, about they being were just like, this is a great name. Back then. But yeah, I would say like <laughs> Mosaic, because really the Cordycep works collectively to take over the ant's muscles. Not the brain. Aha. So it's not the Jedi mind trick because the Jedi mind trick goes straight to the brain. That's why if you have a really strong brain, you can resist it. And why Kilgrave, a.k.a. Purple Man from Jessica Jones, ha- is more powerful than the Jedi mind trick. But we don't have to cover that right now because no. it's not a comic book show. It's everything's interesting. Not just comic books are interesting. Yeah, but I think we just found our new spinoff. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is comic books. Also, we'd have to talk about midichlorians, which I don't want to do right now. If we're there, so <laughs> You don't? I always want to talk about oh, midichlorians. No, thank you. <laughs> so, so anyways, let's get into the meat of the new discoveries about this nasty little fungi and how we figured out that it's the muscles, not the brain. So in 2017, there was a team of researchers at Penn State who were fascinated by the ability of microscopic parasites, like the cordyceps, to be able to manipulate the behavior of the much larger animals they infected, like the carpenter ants. 
the team hypothesized that the manipulation of the host ant had to do with coordinated behavior between all the invading cordyceps cells. Somehow, the tiny parasitic cordyceps cells were infecting the ant, and they must be working together to achieve the common goal of manipulating the ant's behavior. The idea laid out on the table at that time was that this cooperative effort ultimately focused on the ant's brain, like we talked about, mainly because previous studies had found high concentrations of the cordyceps fungal cells inside the skulls of infected ants. So the correlation made sense. But the Penn State team noted that other parts of the ant's bodies, including the actual nervous tissue of the brain itself, had yet to be examined. So they decided to focus their efforts on examining all three major parts of the ant's body, extensively searching for the presence of the invasive cordyceps cells. They used some super sophisticated scanning electron microscopy. Did I say that right? Mm -hmm. Microscopy. Microscopy. Which is basically the most badass kind of microscope available right now to capture images of the infected ant's tissues. Then they employed deep learning computer algorithms that helped them to distinguish between tissues that belong to the host ant and tissues that belong to the invading cordyceps fungal parasites. All this enabled the research team to do a detailed three-dimensional examination of the structure of the cordyceps fungal cells and to see how they were distributed in the various tissues of the poor infected ant. And it turns out that the cordyceps was everywhere. Everywhere! In the ant's head, in its thorax, in the gaster, which is also known as the ant's butt. And perhaps even more interestingly, the researchers found two distinct types of cordyceps cells. The first type, called hyphal bodies, were yeast-like cells that grow and multiply inside the ant's body by a process called budding. This means that to multiply, each hyphal body cell pretty much just divides cleanly in two, over and over and over again. And these kinds of cells create a rapid and extensive infection within the ant's circulatory system. The hyphal bodies of the cordyceps can multiply and spread so quickly The second type of cell, simply called the hyphae, are thin filaments that branch and extend throughout the infected host. Collectively, they're called mycelium. These are made up of one or more cells surrounded by like a tubular cell wall. Uh, You might imagine them like an ever-extending, you know, like a tube of tennis balls, but like going on forever. And the balls were, the tennis balls are like the cells and the tube is the cell wall. And hyphae grow by extending from the tip of each of these tubes. And they can grow where the singular hyphal body cells can't. There are actually some really great time-lapse videos out there of the fungal hyphae growing. They sort of look like these weird, elongating fingers reaching out to claim their hapless victims. They are. Yeah, I guess they are, yeah. <laughs> They're literally doing that. If you don't believe me, Google hyphae growing. You spell hyphae H-Y-P-H-A-E, I believe. Or You'll get some cool videos. Name your band. And probably some unrelated ones, too, but you know. <laughs> Hyphae are great cells in the takeover of an animal as they are specialized for foraging in new environments and for invading the tissue of their hosts. I mean, they don't just do this to ants. They do this to other organisms as well. The cells within the mycelium can pass nutrients and send chemical signals to one another inside the tubular cell wall that they're encased in. Most fungi use them to extend their reach into new environments, to forage, and to acquire resources. It's a great strategy. And discovering that that there were both types of these very powerful cells completely immersed throughout the ant's body suggested that the infectious cordyceps fungus came to the party fully intent on maximum proliferation, total invasive takeover. But if it were true that the brain was a central target of the cordyceps invasion, then the researchers should have been able to find both the hyphal bodies and the hyphae cells embedded in the brain tissue itself. 
So they set out to find out if that was the case. And they employed another very cool type of microscopy. It's actually called <clears throat> fluorescence confocal microscopy. Obviously, right? Obviously. We all know what that is. Duh. But anyways, what it does is, is there, it allows them to see how many of these cells they could find directly inside the nervous tissue of the ant's brain. And in a very surprising twist for everyone, they found zero. Zip. None. There were no cordyceps fungus cells in the brain tissue whatsoever. So while the cordyceps fungus seemed to infect the areas near and around the ant's brain, it seemed to kind of ignore the actual cerebral matter entirely. So this was hugely significant because if the fungus wasn't in the ant's brain, it clearly wasn't controlling the ant's thoughts and desires. No Jedi mind trick. Making it suddenly wish that it could like live on top of the branch of the tallest tree for some weird reason. So then how was it that Ophiocordyceps was getting the carpenter ants to do its bidding? So as I understand it, what we now know is it wasn't. It, it, we know it's not invasion of the body snatchers because invasion of the body snatchers is actually clones, clones. I think. And we know it's not Jedi mind trick because of all this stuff you've been saying. For no the brains. Long. No brains. Okay. And Involved. therefore, we also know it's not. It's like it's not like Kilgrave. It's not like Purple Man. It's not like Eclipso. It's not like Dead Man. It's not like the Spirit King. These are all comic book characters. We're knocking who them off essentially one by do one. essentially brain control parasiting. That's essentially their thing. There's but one I have, person yelling at their radio right now. I, I have a couple of hypotheses of what it might be like, but I'm gonna I'm gonna pause on those until I hear more <laughs> juicy facts. But you're crossing off your list mm -hmm. because once we eliminate brains, mm -hmm. man, it's like guess who? Brains? No. Knock all the ones with brain controlling <laughs> my power. This is another teaser. I got two. So I got my carpenter ant story. Ooh. And then my other tease is that the uh, is that I'll tell you the one that I think it's most like, and you tell me if I'm right, after you tell me everything I need to know. Okay? And I'm going to read the description, and you tell me. I think you have a lot of confidence in our knowledge of comic books. No, no, no. Okay. I, I will read the description. <laughs> you don't have to know the comic book character. Uh, okay. I will read got the it. description of their power, and you tell me if I've gotten it right. The teacher has become the teacher. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. And for all you listening out there, try and guess which superhero <laughs> comic book villain guy Jefferson is thinking about and see if you get it right. Let's see if you have mind control out there. They see definitely if... won't. I'd never heard of the comic book character before, but I now have. Let's keep cracking. So if it wasn't the brain, it had to be something else. And, and what the researchers already knew was that the muscles of the infected ant had to be involved at some point in this whole, you know, fungus controlling the ant's behavior thing because control over muscle tissue was the only way for the fungus to get the ant to make that final and fatal biting motion as it attaches itself to the top of the plant. And indeed, when they examined stacks of infected ant bodies, they found big gaps between the muscle fibers and they were all congested with this like invasive cordyceps fungus. They deciphered that the hyphal body cells infected the ant first, sneaking their way into the circulatory system, which then like whooshes them all around the body because the circulatory system is already designed to like take oxygen from the lungs and bring it to every single muscle. So it just does that with all the spores as well. Hyphal cells are pretty smart. Once settled in different parts of the body, these invasive cells find and coordinate with each other to begin forming the tubular hyphae mycelium network. And this mycelium network spreads, and it ends up creating three-dimensional networks that pretty much completely surround the infected muscle tissue of the ant. So some of the cordyceps cells then begin to actually penetrate and get inside the muscle cells of the ant directly, which is freaky. And then there's other cells that remain detached yet connected to their sort of fungal cell neighbors, which let them stay indirectly in contact with all these muscle tissue cells. I just realized this is kind of like 
What's it called when a bunch of people go to a mall cafeteria and all start dancing at the same time? Oh, uh, flash mobs? Yeah, that's kind of what this is. So the invasion is so thorough that even though the ant dies long before the cordyceps fruiting body emerges from its head in this extravagant display, the fungus has so completely invaded the ant that it continues to utilize it to send its spores out from the cadaver in successive bouts into the air. Good ant, you're useful both in life and death, the cordyceps. <laughs> so this is a total takeover of the ant. Complete, except for the brain. But it's mostly centered in the muscles and not the brain. Yes. Okay, meaning the ant is somewhat still conscious when this is all going down? Probably. Ooh, I mean, we yes. We don't know. We, sh- I think I don't speak ant. So. I think that the assumption is that yes, yeah. because the brain is remain it remains intact and unaffected, then okay. it's okay. likely that the ant is still as conscious as an ant is no, I'm down and to aware two. that its body is no longer its own. I'm down to two characters. Okay. This is actually it's almost exactly like being John Malkovich. You ever seen being John Malkovich? Yes. Because he, yeah, he like whooshes into the body, or he, I don't know, whatever. Like, okay, so like when when John Cusack and he like whooshes into John Malkovich's body, and at first John Malkovich is like, what the heck? Like, what are you doing in here? Get out of my body! Like, stop making me move. And then John, uh, uh, John Cusack, I don't remember his character name, yeah, no, is no. like, is like, I can make you move. And then he does, he does the whole puppet dance. He does oh, the, the yeah. dance that he does with the puppet. He then does with John Malkovich's body. So yeah. that's that's essentially. But John Malkovich still knows he's John yeah, Malkovich. Yeah, he's like, what yeah. the heck? Get out of my body! I believe your art house film reference outdoes my nerd boy comic book references. Okay, hold on a second. First of all. We're both nerds. Second of all, it wasn't, you're a grown-up one. This isn't a. This wasn't a contest. We're just. We're just uh, nor is for, my gratitude yeah. and compliment a diminishment of myself, but only glorification of you. <laughs> Why don't we? <laughs> how many times I watched what? being John Malkovich as a teenager? The, the, the two I was thinking about. One was Jericho from the Teen Titans, mm-hmm. who would do a body invasion. I think it was a little like being John Malkovich. I believe they still knew who they were, and he didn't control the mind. The other I was thinking was Sublime, which was the self-appointed name of the sentient bacterial life form that arose, according to Marvel Comics, during the beginnings of the Earth. And with the rise of multicellular life forms, Sublime found endless number of hosts it could infect, except for mutants. But I don't remember, or I, rather, I just don't understand exactly the mechanism. I don't. I think they may have controlled the mind and My, not just the body. Sub, so I like your being. I like your. I, although the Sublime thing sounds sciency, <laughs> I think true. it's a little more, maybe more like Jericho. But I think you win with being John Malkovich. It depends on what the bacteria, the Sublime bacteria, was doing to its its. It's host. If I had to take a guess, I would say it probably works a lot like the amoeba that affects your brain that makes you love cats. I mean, we're doing a lot of speculation here, too, as to what the ant is able to perceive. But the point is, that yes, the brain remains intact. Therefore, if there's any kind of consciousness this ant has, it's likely unaffected by the cordyceps invading its muscle tissues. So the ant gets manipulated and it might know that it's getting manipulated all the way up until its death. How sad. That is somehow more creepy to me. The being John Malkovich hypothesis connection analogy is more creepy. If the cordyceps is using the ant's body like a biosuit, that like suggests puppet. that it not only knows how to function as a mushroom, it also knows how to function as an animal. Yeah, isn't that weird? Mm-hmm. It has to it somehow knows how how the ant needs to move in yeah. order to climb. Yeah, and bite. Yeah, why does a mushroom know how to move ant legs? Yeah, I mean, 
right? That's what's crazy is like, okay, so not only are these fungal cells, do they have all this knowledge of how to be a fungus and how to be an ant, they're also talking to each other like crew members on a ship, right? So they're like, all these cells are saying together, like, okay, hey, coordinate, lift this leg. Hey, bend that knee. All right, you guys, clamp down that ant's jaw on the underside of this leaf so it won't like fall over when a mushroom sprouts out of its head. I mean, it's very much like um, a, a Trojan horse, you know what I mean? From the outside, we just see an ant, but on the inside, there's like billions, billions, billions of, of cordyceps cells that are, you know, doing all the evil stuff, moving the whole ant ship around. Do we know how the cordyceps fungus is doing all this puppeteering or why it knows how to operate the ant ship in the first place? This is a buzzkill, but no, we don't. The, the good thing, though, is that we're not the only people who think that this relationship, this creepy, creepy relationship is amazing. So there are a ton of studies being done right now on zombie ants, or I guess we should call them living puppet ants. So now that we know that it isn't the brain that's the center of the control for the cordyceps, who knows what the teams of researchers out there are going to find out when it comes to this weird relationship between chemical messaging and muscle manipulation, between puppet master and living puppet, or between John Cusack and John Malkovich. So the ant is the puppet. The cordyceps is the master. But here's something I don't get. Ants live in really organized colonies, yes? Why aren't the colonies doing anything about the fungus? If I leave out like like a cookie in my in my kitchen, they organize and like <laughs> learn how to dismantle my house. <laughs> if we have an epidemic of zombie-like infection, we'd have quarantines, biohazard suits, mass panic. We'd all be shutting this thing down. Why aren't the ants coordinating to fight back? Well, the problem with the cordyceps infection is that it doesn't appear to be detectable to the other ants when it's inside a living ant's body. It's only detectable once the ant has a fungal fruiting body sprouting out of its head. And that doesn't happen immediately. Cordyceps actually takes just over a week to complete its invasion and turn its ant host into a zombie puppet. And then there's another week or two after the ant is killed to fully sprout the fungal fruit at the top of the tree. So there's a lot of time beforehand where the fungus sort of just passes unnoticed within the ant colony. A different team at Penn State is responsible for figuring this one out. They'd set up a series of ant colonies to observe how the healthy members would react to the presence of a recently infected ant. They watched for any signs that the colony could detect the cordyceps infection and if this would change their social dynamics with the infected individual. And what they found was there was little to no change in the way the colony reacted to the infected ant. The healthy ants did not try to attack or isolate their infected nestmates, and they even continued to share the colony's food and resources with them, which really suggests that the other ants had no way to detect the fact that there was an infection of parasitic cordyceps at this point in the infection. Or that they just didn't care. I mean, it's also possible that the ants just don't see the initial infection as a threat to their colony as the whole. I mean... It sounds strange, but it might be the case that the cordyceps infection is like a chronic accepted disease. Yeah, it could be like someone who's sick in our world, right? Somebody who catches the measles because they were taught that immunization causes <laughs> autism. And just because the kid caught the measles, it doesn't mean we throw them out and make them live with beetles. We keep them in our ant world. Try to immunize the next one. <laughs> and hope for the best. Until, you know, a mushroom sprouts out of their head and starts shooting spores everywhere. Yeah, that's when they get to leave. You're right. You're right, though. Colony. It's a good point. There's nothing to say that ant colonies would be any more brutal to their, to their kin when they're sick as we would be. 
there's another possibility, it seems to me, and that is that because it's not brain, that the ants don't detect it because they have telepathy. That the way the ants interact, I'm sort of being silly, but that the way they interact isn't and know each other isn't by smell or look, but how they know each other is some sort of sense that because the brain is still there, they're still thinking, hey, it's Phil. That's Aww. Phil over there. Phil is moving weird, but I know it's Phil because little ant brain waves are exactly the same they used to be because oh what goodness. I have learned about the cordyceps is it doesn't mess with a little Phil's ant brainwaves. This is like watching somebody get grayscale. Uh, is it this like is me watching my brain try to fathom this? Or, <laughs> no. oh, you mean the ants? This, this, a little bit of both. This is actually really cool. This might actually support the idea that colonies, like bee colonies and ant colonies, do use some sort of type of mind exactly. connection. Because, yeah. because, like and the Borg. <gasps> because if, the Borg. If, if that were the case, then the ants. If that were the case in the cordycep, maybe that's why it doesn't touch the ant's brain. Because the cordycep has it's adapted. Nice. In, no, it's adapted and evolved to be able to take over the ant over all these millions of years they've developed this because relationship. If it, if it did and the cordycep the knew, yeah, maybe Once there it were. did the brain, they said, hey, I know you're there. Exactly. I'm going to root you out, Phil. So you're not Phil. Right. So the only cordyceps that made it were the ones that didn't touch Just the brain. Just left the brain alone. If people want future science research homework. If you want to win your own Nobel, this might be the, the place. This could be the connection that we're looking for to somehow reinforce the theory that colonies work via mind mind to mind communication. That's it. We, th we've done it. All right. I don't know. Some, some research team out there, please take this on. Help us figure this one out. Or give us a bunch of funding so we can this go into the jungle could, and do it ourselves. Yeah, this could also be just complete Conspiracy theory, and you know. So science. far, I've got, I've got science that isn't happened yet, and comic books. We'll see what happens next. Here's a question: Are the ants contagious during this time that the fungus infection is incubating? As far as we know, it's not contagious. The infected ants can't really spread any fungal spores while the cordyceps is still maturing. So the, the spores, I mean, because the spores are synthesized and dispersed by the fruiting body, and the fruiting body is the thing that comes out of the ant's face. <laughs> so an infected ant that's like still still fill uh, may not be considered a threat to the colony until that point. Right, that a fungus sprouts from its face. The John Malkovich ant. It's not in the nest when they die, correct? Right. Because I think I understand it. The whole purpose of the cordyceps is to take the ant prisoner just to get free passage up the tall tree so they can shoot its spores out over the forest. Right. It's a dispers dispersal. Wide dispersal. But if the infected ant did start to die, did start to sprout head mushrooms... Would the rest of the ants start noticing then? Oh, like if it were in the nest and it started doing that? Yeah. Or do they just not have the capacity to understand? Or is it our other hypothesis that they're sending little ant-filled brainwaves and everything's cool? Well, as, as a matter of fact, researchers have found that in that exact circumstance, when the ant dies within the colony or is already dead and is placed within the colony uh, with their fruiting mushroom face, that the rest of the ants in the colony, in fact, do react and very quickly. There was a study done in 2014 where researchers placed dead, infected ants inside healthy colonies to see how well the fruiting body of the mushroom would actually grow when it was inside the nest. And what happened was that none of the fungi grew correctly at all within any of the nests on any of those ants. And 64% of the time, the infected ant corpses were promptly removed and destroyed by very diligent ant workers, well before the mushroom was even able to make it to their spore-dispersing stage. 
This actually ended up answering another big question about cordyceps, which was why drive the ant to leave the ant nest and go die on some remote tree branch? I mean, wouldn't it be far more efficient a strategy to just have the infected ant die and then disperse its reproductive spores right there amongst hundreds or thousands or millions of new potential hosts? And if that worked, that probably would be the way the cordyceps would do it. But since the healthy ants are too smart or too observant to keep an obviously contagious community member around... Well, the fungus had to then adapt again and ended up deciding to force the ant to leave the colony before it fruits, thus saving its fruiting body. All right, yeah, it sounds pretty cold, but if you look at the way ant societies work, it's also like pretty good risk management. I mean, ant colonies keep their younger members working safe inside the nest where there's like little threat from danger like you know, like the cordyceps. And then it's the older, more expendable members of the colony that get sent out further from the safety of the nest to like forage for food and resources. And they're the ones that are susceptible to cordyceps infection. And since these ants are near the end of their lives anyway, losing a few of them every so often to fungal infection isn't like a huge concern for the colony as a whole. So in terms of the whole species, the carpenter ant and the cordyceps fungus have sort of a balance. The fungus gets a handful of ants, claims them every so often to serve as sacrifices for their reproduction. And the ant colonies let this happen as long as the spores don't threaten to kill them all. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it sounds really like poetic that way. But it may not be a balance that's readily accepted by either party. If the cordyceps fungus could infect and utilize entire ant colonies, I'm pretty sure it would. And if the ants could eradicate the infection entirely, I mean, we would eradicate measles entirely if we could. So I don't see why ants wouldn't eradicate cordyceps. We almost did. And then... <laughs> So close. And the ants certainly don't lack in defenses against the cordyceps, so... Right. A study done back in 2012 by the University of Copenhagen revealed that the colonies that excel in keeping the cordyceps fungus at bay have a particularly interesting defense system in place. They utilize a second type of parasite known as a hyperparasite that actually preys on the cordyceps parasite itself. It's definitely not like a cure for an infected individual or anything, but the presence of the hyperparasite sort of acts like a tamp on the cordyceps' ability to proliferate and decimate an entire colony. This is because the hyperparasite targets the cordyceps fungus at its reproductive stage, which is, unfortunately for the individual ant, it doesn't happen until the ant has already become a living puppet and has crawled to the tippy top of a tree to die. But the fruiting body of the cordyceps takes some time to mature once it sprouts from the head of the dead puppet ant, and sometimes up to a full month. And in this immature state, the parasitic mushroom is super vulnerable to a parasitic infection of its own. So if infected with this hyperparasite, the mushroom will never actually reach maturity and thus never be able to release its spores and complete its life cycle, which is really good news for those ants who would really like to keep their skulls intact. Which would be most, I would assume. Is this the hyperparasite working for the ants like a security card? Oh, no, no way, no. The hyperparasite, it's really, it's just hungry and wants to survive, and the cordyceps is what's for dinner. It, it kind of is just a lucky break for the ants and business as usual for the hyperparasite. But that's not to say that there isn't a relationship between the carpenter ant, the ophiocordyceps, and the hyperparasite. Because, like, over many, many years, the three species have co-evolved, right? Like, they, they, they learn to rely on one another for survival. But it's not like fungus is evil and ants and hyperparasites are angelic or whatever. They just like they just learn to take what they needed from one another in order to survive. Really? Because if I had one definition for evil, 
It might, in fact, be turning friends and family into living puppet zombie John Malkovich monsters with mushrooms growing out of their faces. Sorry, sorry, John Malkovich. Okay, yeah, like, that's totally fair. But that is not always Ophiocordyceps' story. So it's not necessarily always evil. It's not always evil. And, you know, I mean, if you're going to say it's evil for wanting to reproduce, you could say that everything on Good Earth point. is evil. Some insects have actually developed a beneficial symbiotic relationship with these fungal parasites. Correct. There is, in fact, one insect that has turned this fiendish foe into an incredibly valuable ally. We're talking about the humble cicada. Cicadas are infamous for their loud songs and their super long periods of hibernation underground. If you know what they are, they they sort of look like big, fat, bug-eyed grasshoppers. Their primary source of food is plant sap, which is super high in sugar, but relatively low in other essential nutrients. So in general, the cicadas get around this issue by employing the service of two types of beneficial bacteria that live inside their cells. Of course, beneficial is relative to the cicadas, but, you know, they're called sulcia and hodgkinia. These bacteria, in return for getting to set up shop in their cells, supply the cicadas with a steady stream of those nutrients that they can't get from the sap directly. In 2015, a researcher from Japan named Yu Matsura was studying a particular species of cicada and noticed that he could not find any trace of the Hodgkinia bacteria, which was confusing as the Hodgkinia produces nutrients that the Sulcia bacteria can't. So in theory, the cicada shouldn't be able to survive without it. When Matsura turned his microscope towards the tiny cicada organs where Hodgkinia is normally housed, he found something pretty unexpected. Fungal cells belonging to a very close relative of our ant zombifying or our ant John Malkovichifying, Ophiocordyceps. So somehow these cicadas that lacked the Hodgkinia bacteria had found a way in- to instead domesticate and replace it with one of the most terrifying killer or perhaps evil parasites out there. So it's like if instead of domesticating the docile dairy cow, we'd somehow figured out to how to like make milk out of like face huggers or in fact the alien monster from the movie Aliens. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's not a bad analogy. And then we were like, "Hey, live in our organs <laughs> forever." Get we into my tummy. From aliens. I am lacking my Hodgkinia. You you <laughs> may kill ants in this horrible way, but we want you to live inside of us. <laughs> I know, or it, it could, it really, it's more like if we humans somehow managed to get, like, a, I don't know, a flesh-eating bacteria to, to somehow live within us and provide us with our daily dose of multivitamins instead of killing us. Which I wouldn't be surprised if that is the case. I'm sure there's, whatever that bacteria is that gives us vitamin right. B, I'm sure kills, Does something kills great. something. Yeah, some, or, you know. yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And the thing is, there are other species of cordyceps that absolutely do act as parasites to cicadas. So how is it that these particular cicadas ended up with a cordyceps ally instead of a cordyceps infection? Matsura's hypothesis is that it has something to do with the cicadas' long exposure to a variety of fungi while they hibernate underground for, I think it's, what, seven years or something? Um, Yeah. It's possible that at some point in history, the cicada came in contact with a slightly weaker mutated strain of the cordyceps. And this weak strain would have still infected the cicadas, just like its stronger ones, but without the ultimately fatal effect. And so they would have begun to coexist. And 
then perhaps this randomly mutated cordyceps strain ended up providing some random benefit to the cicadas that infected. I mean, maybe it was a higher resistance to other infections. We don't know what the benefit was. And so the infected cicadas actually had a better chance at survival and passed along this relationship with the weaker strain of cordyceps to their offspring. Fungi also have the same capability as bacteria to generate, you know, amino acids and vitamins, something that their, their hosts might need. So when at some point these cicadas lost the use of their Hodgkinia bacteria for whatever reason, then the benign weak strain of Cordyceps fungus would have already been there to sort of step up to the plate. And then over successive generations, they would have taken over as the symbiotic microbes that helped these cicadas get their nutrients. Evolution is riddled with essential relationships that kind of began at this, this like random lucky mutation. In fact, there's a whole host, <laughs> yes, thank you, of beneficial microbes that evolved from what were originally quite dangerous parasitic ancestors. Would you rather me attempt to do a bad summary of your marvelous explanation <laughs> or tell my carpenter story? Ah, that's right. Everyone has done their homework. They've listened to the episode. Maybe they've learned something, if anything, that... The relationships between biological organisms are, you know, not definite or eternal. So we learned that zombie ants weren't, in fact, zombies. And we learned that they aren't, in fact, and we learned that the thing that's occupying them is not Eclipso or Dead Man or Spirit King or Purple Man or Kilgrave or the Body Snatchers or the Jedi Mind Trick and probably not Mosaic. It might be a little like Jericho, not that much like Sublime, but we do think maybe very much like being John Malkovich. So well, we learned like, that. Like Craig Schwartz is the character. John Cusack's character's name. Like, these are the puppet master. Nobody knows who that is. <laughs> so I think we've learned that. I think we also learned that some people get just a little bit of John Malkovich. Maybe that's the Craig Schwartz. Just get a little Craig Schwartz in you, just so you can like still function when you don't have your Hodgkinia. I think we've learned this. Yes. Well, yes. So what yes. you said in so much of a nutshell is that because the the ant's brain is not affected, then all of those superhero villains you just listed don't really apply because they all go for the brain. And that the cordyceps, while it seems really evil when it comes to the carpenter ants, isn't always evil because some creatures like cicadas actually use them wisely. This could also be considered not just the carpenter ant story, but the sleeping porch story. And the story of why Jeff no longer slept on the sleeping porch. Growing up, my house has what was called a sleeping porch. It's a very old house. It had a porch where you'd sleep outside because it was built without air conditioning. And I and I would start sleeping out there in the summer because it got real hot. And then I just stayed out there. I really liked it. It was better. Yeah. Right? It's nice to be outside. Fresh and, but air. Not all, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's camping. In camping fact, in I house. would stay yeah. sleeping out there. We had, it got down to 10 degrees in Portland. People remember when I was a little kid, we had this horrible, horrible cold spell. And I would just get like literally five sleeping bags, but cover my whole outside. face, cover my whole face. Right? I would just be in like a little cocoon. That's for another episode. And then, and I just, I did that for years. And then one night, I uh, I felt my neck and 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 it, and I had just a little scab on it. I hate this. Story and I was already. like, "That's weak. How'd I get a scab in my neck?" And I, it's like three in the morning or whatever, and I kind of just feel like this scab in my neck. And I go to figure out what had caused it. Right? Did I cut myself? Did I what? What did I? I had started shaving not that long ago, and I went and looked. It wasn't a scab. It was a carpenter ant that had burrowed itself two thirds into my body. Are you serious? Its head and its thorax no. with just its abdomen poking out. Oh my god! I had—I didn't even know that's what carpenter ants did. That story's worth it. And you know how many times I've slept the sleeping porch since? I believe zero times. I believe the carpenter ants <laughs> won, and I stayed inside. How did you get it out of your neck? I scraped and scraped oh. and cried. No, I don't think I cried, but I freaked. 
the heck? I don't think out? anybody would blame you if you cried. Even animals no. burrowed itself fear, into your fear, neck. Immediate fear is what does make you cry. Just grossness. So do you feel good now after this episode, learning about all this destruction to those to those little ants? That uh, no, do you feel vindicated? Does ten year old Jefferson <laughs> feel it was, it was one like ant. he finally I got? Don't, I don't blame the entire species for the actions of one little guy. He's just doing his best. I think that we have to wrap this episode yeah. up. Yeah, I think I think we have thoroughly covered this topic. Thank you for hanging out with us and talking killer fungi John Malkovich puppet masters with us today, Jefferson. Thank you so much. And once again, you have proven to me that everything is interesting. Even if it is gross and burrowed two-thirds into your neck. It's still interesting. (laughs) We'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk more invasions and to share all kinds of cool science with all of you out there. I don't know that we can top John Malkovich ants, but I I, I will see what we can do. (laughs) All right. Well, as always, enormous thanks to our producer, Amalia Boyles, and to our editor, Jenny Alpa. And to the rest of the X-Ray team, you guys are indispensable. Yeah, big, big, big thank you on this one. And thanks to you, the listener, for your support, your time, and your love of science. Hey, by the way, if you enjoyed this episode or if you learned something new, please subscribe and tell a friend to download an episode, please, on iTunes. Or better yet, go and review the show on iTunes. That's really helpful. All of our episodes are there. And they're also on everythingisinteresting.org and Google Play. Oh, and the all-new, very exciting X-Ray podcast site, xraypod.com. Yeah, go there. It's really cool. Until next time, I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. This is Everything is Interesting on X-Ray FM, where radio and science is yours. 